Welcome to Tell Me More, a podcast series featuring distinguished visitors to Tufts University who share their ideas, discuss their work, and shed light on important topics of the day. If you were to visit a tiny remote island off the coast of Maine this summer, you might hear this. That's not a creaky door. Believe it or not, you're actually listening to an Atlantic puffin, a small seabird with an iconic bright orange beak, once hunted to extinction in New England. About a hundred years ago, there were less than five puffins left in all of Maine. But now, thanks to conservationists, the Atlantic puffin is making a comeback on a few islands, and they're becoming a model for how people can help other species on the brink. Journalist Derek Jackson, an environmental writing fellow at the Union of Concerned Scientists, has been following the story for decades. He visited the Tufts campus this past spring to discuss the book he co-authored, Project Puffin, The Improbable Quest to Bring a Beloved Seabird Back to Egg Rock. In this episode of Tell Me More, Jackson sits down with Tufts University's Anna Miller to talk about what it takes to bring an animal back from local extinction, the sometimes sticky ethics of conservation, and what it's like to be an environmental reporter in today's changing climate. Let's listen in. So tell me about Atlantic puffins. Just generally, somebody that's not familiar, what do they look like? Uh, They are uh, about mm, eight, nine inches tall, and they have an orange, yellow beak, um, black and white bodies. John James Audubon uh, once called them uh, grotesque and comical. (laughs) Uh, So uh, the the bird evokes many emotions in many people uh, visually. Some people think it looks like a clown. Some people think it looks like a uh, a toucan. Some people think it looks like a uh, penguin, which is not. I want to be at the very outset. uh, Any listener should understand that penguins are southern hemisphere and puffins are northern hemisphere and one of the things most fascinating to me about them is they uh, can fly uh, fairly long distances uh, uh, for migration but their wing beat is ridiculously rapid it's like almost like a a big giant hummingbird they don't glide at all Um, they they have to beat their wings at a super rapid rate to keep flying Um, so they're a, they're a seabird. They're called an alcid. Um, they dive for fish. Um, that's their, uh, their one and only diet. Uh, they're ad- adaptable to their terrain. So, for instance, in Maine, they uh, nest in burrows underneath large boulders. Um, however, up in Canada and in, over in Europe, they will nest along grassy, steep slopes uh, with just minor indentations they're pretty, they, they're pretty adaptable as to how they can nest. You were saying that puffins really evoke a lot of different responses from people when they first see them. When you saw your first puffin, what went through your mind? What did they evoke for you? Uh, for me, I try to remember, the first time I ever saw one was in 1986, and I just thought they were so exotic. Uh, I'd never seen any bird like that. Uh, but... I'm a latecomer. I'm a I'm a uh, adult onset bird person, <laughs> so I'm the kind of person that so was originally so stupid about birds that when I saw a great blue heron for the first time, I thought it had to be like a super endangered prehistoric <laughs> bird. And of course, now you just 
you, you go on any river, you see tons of them. Um, but the puffins were captivating um, right at the start, like they are for many people, uh, by their color and also by just knowing the story. The, 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 this is a bird that was hunted in Maine down to its last uh, two to four birds, depending on the historical record you read. Um, by fishermen and coastal dwellers who were hungry for either the bird's meat or their eggs. Um, there is a common uh, misconception that the hunting was for the millinery trade. Uh, That's fancy hats. Fancy hats, yeah. And that was the rage in the 1800s. But those feathers uh, tended to have come from gulls, herons, um, and terns. Was there a huge uproar from Mainers, you know, that this bird that was very common off the coast of Maine all of a sudden went the way of the dodo? Were people outraged? In our research for the book, there was no documentation of any outrage. Like a lot of extinctions, I'm sure when they took off the last one, they didn't realize they took the last one. So as they got decimated, um, there there was no puffin society to look out for them. Uh, except for those last two, and the, the what be what became the beginnings of the Audubon Society realized those were the last two to four birds, and began an active uh, program of paying a warden uh, to wave a gun at poachers <laughs> to to preserve those last birds. I'm really curious what drew you to this story. I mean, you've made a career as a Boston Globe columnist. Uh, You're a highly acclaimed journalist, a Pulitzer Prize finalist. You've covered the most important topics in our society from gun control to politics to education, racial inequality. And then now you're doing a lot of work uh, reporting on puffins right now and and also climate change. So so what shifted you to reporting about puffins? (laughs) Puffins are a a really wonderful, feel-good story about what we can do to repair what we've destroyed. And um, as I mentioned, uh, puffins are down to two to four birds in Maine uh, around 1902. 1903, and people got used to there not being any puffins. The, the, the sort of historical memory of puffins was completely lost when Steve Kress came along as a young bird instructor, and he happened to stumble upon a passage that said puffins existed on these islands in Maine, and so he got in his head to uh, you know try to bring them back, and we can get into that later. Also for me, besides the puffin, it was also a a great story on young adults who are committed and engaged in repairing the planet. And uh, Steve could not have done this project without the, now today, the project's now 46 years old. Um, He's had probably about 600 maybe um, interns over the years who have uh, helped preserve this bird. So for me, um, it's also a story of hope that of, of succeeding generations caring enough to you know, continue the work. And third, in more recent years, the puffins have taken on even a, a completely different meaning than what Steve hoped for in 1973 when he started, which is now the bird is literally, uh, sorry for the cliche, a canary in the coal mine of climate change. So how did Project Puffin begin? You mentioned Steve Kress, and he was really the person that kind of took it upon himself 
to bring the puffins back. How do you bring back a species from the dead? <laughs> There's two obvious ways you could think about bringing them back. Finding some, ad- kidnapping some adults <laughs> and, and bring them to the island and see if they'll come back next year. Um, that didn't seem that didn't seem like a great idea because uh, the birds were known to have a high fidelity to where they were hatched, and so so he got this idea. Well, what about chicks? And uh, chick translocation is what it's called. Um, you can also call it chick kidnapping, I, whatever you want to call it. Um, up until this time, no seabird had ever been restored on an island that humans had killed it off. And there's just something really extra hard about, you know, uh, trying to d- uh, do it on sea rather than land. So he f- applied to the Canadian government. Um, Canada had lots of puffins. And at first they said, you're crazy. This is stupid. They're going to wherever you, no matter how far south you take them, they're going to come back to Canada. So he had a mentor who became an intermediary. And the, uh, and the intermediary was able to convince the Canadian government um, to give the kid a chance. So it started in 1973 with uh, six chicks um, just to really see if they could hand raise and fledge, which means grow to age where they go out to sea by themselves. And uh, was able to raise five. Uh, and those five went out to sea, and they were never seen again. But he proved that he could fledge them. They hand, you know, hand fed them, uh, gave them, put fish in front of them, and the chicks ate it like as if a uh, puffin adult had given them the fish. So that was good. So he got permission the next year for, I think it was 54. Um, those 54 fledged successfully, and they were never seen again. Oh, no. So that... But again, the Canadian government gave him a chance to sort of seed the ocean with enough puffins with the hope that they some would start to come back. So in 1975, he got a shot at 100, um, fed them all. Um, they went out to sea. No birds came back. 1976, 100 more. They all went out to sea. Not a single puffin showed up. Oh, no. So they... You know, the Kennedy government is getting a little tired of this. And so uh, there was uh, real possibilities that the, the project was going to get shut down. But in 1977, the f- birds that had been banded as chicks in 1975 started showing back up on the island. Uh, and that was great. But the only way the project would be a true success is if they actually bred. And so another 100 in 1978. Birds are coming back, no breeding. 1979, 100 birds come back, no breeding. 1980, 100 more go out, no breeding. So again, the Canadian, everybody's like, I don't know, kid, this is not happening. And but then on July 4th, 1981, for the first time, a puffin was seen flying back onto the island with fish in its mouth. And the only reason a puffin flies onto an island with fish in its mouth is to feed a chick. Did people lose their minds with joy? I mean, I'm just thinking to wait that long. Yeah. Well, the uh, the woman who was helping Steve uh, that day on July 4th, she like got on the uh, CB or like 
Coast Guard radio and was telling the woman on the Coast Guard base, we've got puffins, we've got puffins. So, yes, there was a lot of excitement that way. The uh, the return of the birds did get some publicity. Um, New York Times, Newsweek, uh, I think Animal Kingdom. I mean, it was... It, it was quite a thing um, to see this project that it really was successful. And and you were a news journalist and, and still are. Yeah. Uh, were you a part of the news teams kind of descending on the island and reporting about this? Well, I went out in 1986. So that's five years after the uh, first, um, first breeding puffins uh, started. Uh, but... Even at that time, at five five years out from the first breeding puffins, they were still under uh, in the only mount, numbered in the teens for breeding pairs. So when I went onto the island, it was very cool, but it was like a puffin over there, a couple puffins over there, and then spotting them every ten minutes. So it wasn't it wasn't any particular congregation, but for me to see even just one puffin was really really cool. Um, that experience stays in your mind. And so, you know, fast forward um, to around 2005, um, I just said, let me just call Steve up. And um, and he says, do you remember, I don't know if you remember me, but I was this, like, black reporter from Newsday and came out to do a puff. And so he said, hey, yeah, I remember you. And so uh, he invited me to come back out and did a story for The Globe on where the project uh, had progressed. And uh, and that became the uh, that it became an, an annual series in the globe of uh, puffins, and then sometimes I would combine it with other birds iconic to New England, uh, the state of the loon, common loon, and the recovery of the bald eagle. And people really like like those updates. Uh, in fact, I even got I got emails from people who hated my political commentary. And folks from, shall we say, the right wing side of things said, I hate what you write about race and and uh, welfare and 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 gun control. And but stick stick with puffins, man. You're good. (laughs) Stick with puffins. (laughs) Um, And uh, so there's something about this story that, you know, appeals to, you know, appeals to a huge uh, swath of people. The sort of you know, less glamorous side of the project is that when he started the project, these islands were overrun by gulls, mostly herring gulls and great blackback gulls. And that's a result of humans having destroyed the ecosystem back in the 1880s and 1890s. Uh, Humans so upset the balance with the removal of puffins and probably other birds that Gulls, who are among the most opportunistic of all birds, just said this this is going to be our Manhattan. So in order to even get the project started, um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife had to go out and uh, uh, poison uh, many of the gulls and to get it down to a number that, you know, you could think about puffing, uh, reestablishing other birds. He realized that terns, provide protective cover for puffins with their screeching. And so they developed tape turn calls and they made turn decoys along with puffin decoys. Steve and um, other researchers thought maybe if we can fool the birds to think that there's more of them than there actually are, uh, that 
they would be attracted to the, the these islands. Uh, puffins were known to be socially attracted to each other, hanging out in big groups in Europe, um, in Iceland, and other in Canada, Scotland. So you figure if you can make one puffin look like two, and two puffins look like four, and so forth, uh, they might say, "Oh, this is a nice place for us," and 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 really settle in and. It, uh, I've seen I've seen the puffins like nip their bills at mirrors and go try to go up to an adult decoy with fish. So this stuff actually works. <laughs> <laughs> How many puffins are there today? So from a, a state that was down to its last two to four birds in nineteen the early nineteen hundreds, there are now thirteen hundred pair on several islands: roseate terns, Arctic terns, black terns have come in from the Midwest. Um, for some crazy reason. Uh, one time I was in my bird blind and a northern gannet, this really elegant, gigantic bird, huge wingspan uh, with beautiful blue eyes, uh, landed right, right in front of my bird blind. You know, it's kind of like he started with one bird, but he ended up with a menagerie. Do you ever find that there was a kind of uncomfortable reality to conservation, where sometimes you have to kill one species in order to help another? Um, did, did people ever struggle with that? There's a chapter in our book that talks about how several of the interns were uncomfortable at first with killing gulls uh, to, to uh, uh, maintain the puffin population. Uh, although when, once, when you see what a gull can do, they can eat like duck chicks, like popcorn. It's not just gulls. Um, other beautiful creatures get onto the islands periodically that have to be uh, lethally dealt with, such as uh, otters, mink. I think the hard part, Anna, about it is what Project Puffin and the, the struggle that the interns go through to get from a, a point of discomfort to a point of being able to pull the trigger to kill a gull or an otter or a mink. Uh, is that we have to always remember these islands, whatever condition they were in prior to Europeans coming and making massive commercial use out of the Gulf of Maine uh, with fishing operations, um, we have to remember that we completely turned the ecosystem upside down. Um, the most underappreciated or unappreciated part of conservation is probably a lot of people who only think about this on the surface. They think that there's a balance of nature, that if we just restore that balance, that it will remain balanced. Um, what Steve discovered, and certainly what I realized with the research helping with the book, is that we humans are have been so efficient at doing what we think we need to do, that we have permanently altered whatever was there before. And we're only really seeing, in lots of ways, we're only really seeing postage stamps of the richness that was there before. In some ways, we're kind of playing God here, um, making sure we choose kind of who lives and who dies. Is that kind of an uncomfortable dilemma that a lot of these conservationists have to juggle? The great Canadian uh, uh, marine biologist, Tony Diamond, who's one of Steve Kress's longest standing colleagues, um, once he told me um, 
30, oh my gosh, he told me this like uh, 33 years ago. Um, he said that um, it's time somebody play God because we've played the devil for so long. And uh, one of um, Steve's mentors um, said uh, in kind of similarly that if we don't play God, the goals will. Uh, I mean, I, you can think of it like national parks. I mean, we most people, conservationists realize that national parks themselves are kind of postage stamps of what, <laughs> what was there before. And they're, they're undergo the animals, you pick the national park, they're undergoing constant management. Um, I, I was in Yosemite one year, and um, scores of people in a parking lot were captivated by a bear in a tree eating apples. And But the uh, ranger came by and said, everybody out of here, we got to get this bear back in the woods because if it gets habituated to you all, then we're going to have to destroy it. And so, you know, we're, you know, I think the good thing is when people have time, they're drawn to the animal kingdom and they're, there's an instinct to want to care. But we also really got to be mindful of all the activities that endanger them, everything from landfills that jack up gold populations to go back to, back to like a 1950s newsreel. Uh, people out of their cars in Yosemite and Sequoia feeding the bears. <laughs> we can't do that. What do you think the future of puffins is? It is it hopeful? Is it pessimistic? Uh, up up until about uh, three four years ago, uh, on the international red list of birds, they were a bird of quote least concern, which means there's millions of them. We don't have to worry about them. They're in good shape. Um, they are now endangered. Um, and this is primarily because of what's happening in Europe. Their reproduction has crashed over the last several years. Right now, there's still um, a lot of hope in the sense that puffins have, certainly the puffins Steve Kress has dealt with, have been amazingly resilient up until this point. Uh, the waters of the Gulf of Maine, where his project is, they are, those waters are warming faster than 99% of the world's ocean. And that has changed the kind of fish. Many species of fish are moving north, their core populations are moving northwards at speeds never seen before. So as brief examples, uh, lobsters have moved, their core population has moved 155 miles north um, in the last, since the 1970s. Species like uh, herring are going deeper, and herring used to be uh, like the primo numero uno fish of puffins in the 1970s. Herring are now almost completely gone from the puffin diet. Uh, fortunately, puffins are using other fish that have rebounded with federal fish management, redfish, hake, haddock. So that's both the hope that the puffins are resilient and, however, that raises a lot of questions about as fish keep moving more northward, what are the puffins going to catch? And will it be the kind of fish that the chicks can eat? So you did a lot of field reporting for this story. What was it like being on this very remote island, working in a seabird colony? Was it really loud? Was it messy? Oh, yes. Both, all of the above. It's the loudest 
to me, a summer is not complete unless I, I'm deafened by, <laughs> by the turns and, and, and gulls screaming and squawking when, um, you know, new people come onto the island. And it's just incessant nonstop. And the only time it ever stops is when a bald eagle flies over and it creates this thing called the dread. And a dread is like this like really crazy thing. It's where thousands of birds all at once, no matter what the species is, thousands of birds go absolutely silent because they, they know that a predator is hovering above them. And then when they think the dread is over, then the crescendo rises up again. Like uh, it's just one of those magical things uh, in nature that like, you have to exp- experience it. You know, it's kind of smelly, a lot of guano, um, and that's you know, and it's kind of funny. You get used to that, um, but to be on those islands is heaven to me. Um, you're surrounded by the sea. You're reminded so much about creatures who don't need or want your presence in, the, in an ideal sense. They completely function their independent lives with not a world of you know, care about you, even though they don't know it, but that they need us now to preserve them. Are there any puffins that you specifically got attached to? <laughs> yeah, there was a puffin uh, Y33, and Y33 was the oldest one in the United States and Canada, and it lived to 35. Um, that was when it was last seen back around 2013, 2014. And there was a Scottish puffin that was a couple years ahead of it, and we kept saying, we don't want to wish any ill will on that Scottish puffin, but sure it would be nice to get the record. <laughs> uh, but Y30, Y33 disappeared after its 35th uh, hatch day, and Scotland still has the record. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Derek Jackson. We really appreciate you speaking with us all about your work and Atlantic puffins, but also environmental reporting. Uh, it's been wonderful to read your work. Uh, my pleasure, Anna. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Tell Me More. Would you like to see photos of the puffins on Eastern Egg Rock? Visit our website, tellmemore.tufts.edu. Please subscribe and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And to be the first to hear about new episodes, please follow Tufts University on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd also welcome your thoughts on the series. You can reach us at tellmemore at tufts.edu. That's T-U-F-T-S dot E-D-U. Tell Me More is produced by Stefan Hacker, Anna Miller, Dave Nusher, and Katie McLeod Strollo. This episode was written and produced by Anna Miller, Web production and editing support provided by Taylor McNeil. Thanks to the Tufts Environmental Studies Program, Tisch College, the Department of Biology, and the Center for Interdisciplinary Studies, which sponsored the lecture. And a special thanks to Bob McGuire and the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, who provided the field audio of the Puffin in Maine. Our theme music is sourced from DeWolf Music, and my name is Patrick Collins. Until next time, be well. Be well.